this week's guest, I think a lot of people will be really excited about this week's guest. How long have you known this person? 33 years or so. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So uh, on this week's episode, you're going to be interviewing your friend, Paul Feig. For folks that don't know uh, Paul Feig's work, can you kind of set up the kind of stuff that Paul does? Paul is a uh, uh, an actor and uh, uh, a director and a writer and a producer. Um, he created the show Freaks and Geeks with uh, Judd Apatow, another friend of ours from back then. Um, so he created that show, directed Bridesmaids, directed uh, A Simple Favor uh, not that long ago, uh, the all-female Ghostbusters um, he did. Um, yeah, he's he's done he's done okay for himself. Oh, in the office. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say the office and all sorts he's of stuff. on the office. Yeah. What are the what some things to look for with Paul that um, kind of stand out to you? You hardly ever hear how somebody thinks about the nuts and bolts of this kind of thing. So, I think that's what what you'll hear is just how how it all goes together. How the sausage is made. Well, I think about it like this. I, I made this mistake once and. Those kinds of things, so that hopefully people can take that in. And so there are lessons there for them, and they can take them on. And when they're directing or whatever, they'll they'll have uh, Paul's mistakes and his successes um, as sort of a guide. So I would say, um, hopefully, it's just a it's an engaging conversation with some information in it you can use. Hello, and welcome to You Are a Storyteller, Masters of the Craft a conversational series hosted by author and filmmaker, Brian McDonald. In this episode, Brian is joined by actor, writer, and filmmaker, Paul Feig, who directed Ghostbusters, A Simple Favor, and Last Christmas. Paul shares how his experiences as a young comedian helped hone his craft and why he believes in honest stories that entertain audiences responsibly. I have so many ranch people that are gonna be on that uh, I sort of thought, well, I better explain what the ranch is. And oh, yeah. so um, uh, we had uh, uh, Josh uh, Weinstein on. Oh. Uh, yeah, he was on. Uh, so uh, he's not a, really a ranch guy because the ranch was dismantled by the time he came uh, around, but he's, he's sort of a ranch guy. Yeah. yeah, he's ra ranch adjacent. So uh, as, uh, how would you explain what the ranch was? I mean, the ranch was a weird collective of comedy guys <laughs> and, and women, but mostly guys, I hate to say, um, who we were all stand-ups at the time, and we would perform at night, and then we'd go to this house that was in the back of the valley that the Higgins boys and Gruber uh, and Lisa, you know, who was Dave's girlfriend at the time, um, and, and Sarah, Sarah Dobney. Uh, did Rich live? Yeah, Rich lived there too. Rich, oh, wait, Rich did. lived there and Sarah didn't live there. Did, yes. right. yeah. But it was all this gang, and it was kind of like the comedy slovenly version of the Algonquin Round Table, because we would all get there probably about midnight, you know, because we put our sats all over. And then we just stay up all night playing poker and drinking coffee. And, uh, you know, they all smoked. I didn't smoke. Um, but no, we never really boozed it up other than the occasional party when we would shotgun Berkey beer. But um, it was just all about playing poker and trying to make each other laugh and talking about everything and pitching everything. And uh, it, was, it was great. We, I mean, it was for a number of years we did it. Yeah, it was, uh, I got introduced to the ranch in 86. Yeah. So is that one you, is that I about? I, 
that's right around when I got there, 85 or 86, maybe early in 86. I learned about it because I had started performing at the uh, comedy, uh, no, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Edwin Comedy Theater, as we all know, mm -hmm. you were there too, down in, uh, in downtown LA, which was in the Variety Arts Center. And um, they showed up one night. I had kind of been a regular there, and then they showed up one night and auditioned, and they were so funny. And then they they liked my set or whatever, and they said, "Hey, you should come back to our house." And it just it just had this template of every single night for years. That's all we ever did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and a lot of time during the day, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So all night, all day. Oh, yeah. Like I don't know how we ate. I don't know how we like. When I think about it, I'm like, how do we do anything else? It seems like we were there all the time. Oh no! And it was it was always it wasn't a successful night unless you saw the sun come. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Like we never. I, the times we'd go home, when it was dark. It was like, oh, we failed somehow. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it was really fun, and and not everybody was a stand-up. Jim Wools was right there. You know, we had some actor actor people and yeah. and some other people. Like people. Pat Hazel. And, yeah. You know, yeah. Performers yeah. or everybody was interested in entertainment. And, and, yeah. And comedy. I guess Jim wasn't a comedy guy per se, but he was a funny guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just wanted to explain the ranch to people because it's going to come up just in conversation with someone, right. you know what I mean? And that's almost exactly what Steve said. What you said is almost exactly what Steve said. You know uh, what? It, yeah. You Even to the, the, uh, the reference to the Algonquin round table. Oh, nice. Well, yeah. we, I mean, we played poker at a round table that I, when, when the ranch sadly ended because the Higgins boys and Gruber got picked up by the comedy channel and sent off to New York, they closed down the house, but I, got the table, the famous table that we all sat around. I had everybody autograph it. It was in my garage forever. And then during a move, somehow it got, got thrown away. So it is, it is oh, lost the time, but I still have the bucket of poker chips. Do you the, really? In the paint bucket. Yeah. So I still have those. Oh, wow. You yeah. should give a poker chip to everybody. Uh, yeah. You know what? I like that. And then we'll give yeah. the rest to the, the Smithsonian. <laughs> <laughs> in the, in the storeroom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so anyway, cool. Um, so I, yeah, that's when I met you. I think I met you at the comedy lounge first. I don't think I met you at the ranch first. Yeah. Well, you were, yeah, cause I remember I was a fan of your act because you were so funny and you had the, uh, you did that's the, a really great lie to tell. Thanks for doing that. No, I was no, remember you had, I thought it was the funniest thing. You did the Ray Harryhausen uh, impression. Which I did. I always did. with you laugh. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, uh, you know what? Here's what I figured out about my stand-up. I've been talking about this because I couldn't figure out why I couldn't get better at it. There was a peak and I couldn't get better. And it was a really good lesson for me because what it was was I was less interested in stand-up than I was doing movie stuff. That's why I moved down there. That's what I had been doing before I moved down there. Yeah. And I just sort of fell into stand-up because it was the 80s and that's what everybody did, right? And so I sort of, I sort of fell into it. Yeah, and, and but what I realized was because of the makeup of, of of the movie business, then it's now starting to change, where I was always a black guy in a white world. I couldn't be honest about my experiences and who I was on stage, right. and I found that not being able to be honest is what held me back. So I would do these silly things, and I had serious things I wanted to talk about and feel, felt like I couldn't talk about them. Mm -hmm and have a career in the movie business. Right. Well, that's a bummer though. I mean, that's terrible. You know, well, when you feel, when you, anytime you feel like you can't be honest and I get it, I totally get it. I just, it's, it, that makes me sad in retrospect. Oh, thanks. Well, I, I, I didn't realize it until later. That's what was going on. 
Like, yeah. oh, I was running from this. And I, I, I think it happened when I saw Chris Rock at the comedy store one night. Um, and he wasn't famous yet. Yeah. And I saw him and I was like, well, I can't. That, I can't do that. I can never do that. And then I was, then I had to go into my, like, why can I not do that? What's going on there? But I think for him, stand up was his way into movies. Yeah. Right. For me, it, I just wanted to do movies and stand up just sort of a side thing. And then I, you know, but I, I learned a lot of skills I use every day. No, I mean, I'm so glad I was a stand up for, for those years. I learned a ton. I mean, I, I used my stand up experience more in putting movies together than, than anything with the test screenings and all that. But just before we go to that, I mean, it was an interesting time because that when we were doing it, which was the late eight, you know, mid to late eighties, that was the time when everybody, everything was being discovered from stand up, you know, right. Roseanne and Brett Butler and, you know, Carsey Warner, they were just cherry picking comedians. Yeah. And so anybody who wanted to get into the business to be a performer, star, you know, actor, whatever it was, you, you, everybody went to stand up. So that was this weird time where lots of people were funneling into stand up, myself included, you know, cause I went, I always wanted to be a stand up, but I wanted the end goal was to be an actor, you know, kind of the way that Steve Martin did or those kind of guys. But there was a time when it was just uh, really cool people hanging out, getting to know each other, all very supportive people. Um, it was really, it was one of those times that and the ranch, um, I sort of knew it was special at the time. I don't know if you felt like that, Yeah, but I felt like it was special. Like there's something special happening here. And when you look at who came out of it, yeah, it clearly was that. Yeah. Um, and I, I envy sometimes, uh, you know, that Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks were at parties doing the, you know, 2000 year old man, yeah. but our parties weren't unlike that. Yeah. You oh, know, no. the ranch was not unlike that. Oh, yeah, very much so. Very much so. No, and it's, no, there's these times in your life I've had where I'll kind of just step out of my body and look around going like, everybody here is awesome. You know, I remember having that that one time, uh, it was the end of the fourth season of The Office, and I was directing, you know, one of the final episodes. But all the, the, the original writers were all off in a group having a confab. And I remember just looking over there going like, that is a super group of writers who that's going to be hard to replicate on other shows. Like mm -hmm. I just, uh, everybody was, was great uh, in, uh, when it, in that time. So yeah, I, I like those moments when you kind of go, Oh, I should take a snapshot of this. Yeah. It's uh, it, the planets line up and if you can be present for it, it's a really interesting thing. Yeah. Um, um, and it actually, it grows, maybe I forget all the bad stuff, but it grows in importance in my life as I get older yeah. and uh, in specialness as I get older. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's pretty amazing. And, and when I think about those people in that time, I realized today I've known you and all the people from that time longer than I haven't known you. Right. Yeah, no, right. I know. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I think about that a lot, too. It's just that, yeah, I mean, it just shows how long we've kind of been working at it and, and trying to do it and doing it and, and all that stuff. Um, yeah, no, it's funny, but I always, I, I always focus so much on when it falls apart. Mm -hmm. And I remember so distinctly, you know, when, when they got the you know, Higgins Boys and Gruber show and they're going to go away. And remember, they had, they had that, the ironic thing, they had the party. It was they like had a big party. Yeah. Big party. And we were all just like horrified because all these like showbiz outsiders were kind of coming. Yeah. In. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know who came into that the first time? And, and I remember Bannon and I going like, who the fuck are those? 
my wife. Oh, <laughs> my really, Larkin? Wife. Yeah. <laughs> she showed up with her sister, and they, they had made a cake that was in the shape of a pack of Merit cigarettes. I remember the cake. Yeah, and that was Lori. But I remember, I remember that all the ranchers at the time were like, "How dare this person come in?" And they're taking this stuff. I'm like, yeah, who is she? And then we've been married for twenty five years. <laughs> that's so funny. I didn't, uh, I didn't connect that. <laughs> Isn't that wild? Yeah, that's crazy. But it was weird. It was all these people we never heard of, never knew, didn't know. I didn't even know how they knew the thing was happening. Yeah. And it just put, it suddenly made the ranch feel very kitschy. Because I remember going walk, walking around like, oh, look at, wow, this place is such a mess. Oh, this is so funny. And it just, it reduced everything we loved and was pure to us into this like, you know, sort of like a zoo, you know, <laughs> yeah. exhibition of like, oh, look at how these animals all live. Just like, oh, <laughs> Yeah, that was a sad ending. Yeah. Um, and it was really the end of something, the end of that hub. Yeah, you know. But thankfully, uh, I mean, thankfully, we all, like you said, we all stayed friends. So, you know, that was the whole thing about going to college. Like college, you're going to make, you know, relationships that last forever. I'm in contact with hardly anybody from film school, but everybody I went to the ranch with has been influential in my life. I've learned a ton from, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. Apatow. I met Judd. And, you know, Judd was a ranch. Was that ranch, yeah. Ranch, you know, he was a, a, a semi-regular at the ranch. Yeah. Judd was funny. Yeah. He was doing things. He was young. He was also doing things I had no idea he was doing. Oh, totally. Oh, totally. You know what I mean? I, like, yeah, you know. Just like, like what? You were doing a what? A TV show with who? Like, I had no idea. He wouldn't talk about it. I didn't know what he was doing. Yeah. Well, I remember being blown away because he was young. And we'd all, you know, he got, he was the brunt of a lot of jokes because he was so much younger than all of yeah. us. But then it's like, oh, but Judd's booking a club. Oh, Judd's working with Comic Relief. Oh, Judd's, yeah. it's like, wait, what? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, how does he know how to do that stuff? <laughs> I know. Yeah, it was really strange, but you were the person. This is a weird thing. Speaking of the ranch, I was reading a book about DreamWorks. Do you know this book I'm talking about? I was reading a book about DreamWorks and the creation of DreamWorks or whatever it was. This is a couple of years, a few years ago now. Hmm. All of a sudden, they were talking about Judd, and then they were talking about you because there was a whole thing on Freaks and Geeks. Oh, cool. Oh. And they mentioned the ranch. They didn't call it the ranch, but they mentioned the ranch, and there was a conversation that I clearly remember, I don't know where this reporter or this writer got that information. And it was you saying, you guys all are laughing at Judd, but Judd is going to be the guy. <laughs> yep, he's going to run this town someday. Yeah, yeah, and that's in this book. <laughs> and I'm like, how did she find that? <laughs> that's so funny, wow. No, but, yeah. they, but that was that feeling. I remember sitting at the poker tables because they, they were all bashing on Judd after he left for about something. And I was like, yeah. guys, man, <laughs> get ready. Because this cat is like, you know, he's just like, he's had the maturity of like a 50-year-old man or something. Mm -hmm. And it understood showbiz, which we were just like, you know, we're all creatives. So like, who we want to be funnier? You know, that was <laughs> But I remember, do you remember, were you there the, the, the time that Judd and I discovered we had the same sense of humor and everybody else was so put off by it? <laughs> no, I don't remember. You know, it was bad, be pre-internet. Remember, it was all always, you know, videotapes. There'd be the videotape yeah. that went around and they got sent, somehow they got their hands on or it got sent to them, I think, by somebody trying to work with them. This woman who self-taped her stand-up, but it was at the beach and it was in these different locations and it had a laugh track on. I have some vague memory of this. Remember, and she was, she was on the beach and she would do this kind of terrible stand-up 
And she go like, hoo or make something. And then this <laughs> you go like, ha, 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 ha. And then always had a thing goes, ha, ha, oh, that's great. And like, they had just used the same laugh every time. And then it was broken up with these interstitials of her dancing with this other guy and the camera's going like this. Uh -huh. Clearly, like, you know, a person who was a little off. Okay. And Judd and I just thought it was so funny. And we couldn't stop laughing at it. And they got really upset because they're like, clearly there's, you know, this poor woman, there's something wrong. And, and we were both going like, I know. But if she sent it out, she is putting herself out there to, to get laughed at. And so they were so horrified by us. I, I felt bad after it. But at the same time, I just realized Judd and I just like the idea of sort of, of, of oddballs and weirdos, you know, uh -huh. and, and finding the humor in them, uh, you know, not in a mean way, although we, I guess we were being kind of mean that night. Mm -hmm. but, uh, I just remember that was the first time I go like, oh, hey, Judd, we, we have the same sense of humor and everybody else hates it. <laughs> I don't, I remember that tape sort of, I've put it away, but that sounds like something that would happen there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so you were working uh, more than most of us then. You, because you had the TV, you had, uh, I remember when you got Dirty Dancing, the TV show <laughs> yes. as an actor. I remember when you were on that show, mm -hmm. uh, which no one remembers. And I only remember because you were on it. Yeah, exactly. That's it. You know, it's like, and it didn't last very long, but. No, we got killed by, on that one, we got killed by the writer's strike. Uh, oh, is that what happened? Yeah, because we were all set to go. It was like right after the movie, it was going to yeah. ride the coattails and then, you know, the strike killed everything for like nine months or something. And okay. People didn't care about the movie after that. <laughs> right, sure. So, okay, so you, you were doing that. You were doing things like uh, you did Facts of Life as an actor. Mm -hmm. You did, uh, you, so you were, you were working a little bit more as an actor or as a, you were, do, you know, it wasn't a lot, but you got some things. You did that Ski Patrol movie. Yeah. Thing, right? That's, I, remember, I remember going away from, you know, for the, from the ranch for months. Yeah, patrol, and then coming back expecting a hero's welcome and walking in, everybody's like, "Oh yeah, hey, that's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> all right." <laughs> I remember, like Bannis went away once for a week, and when he came back, it was like, "Oh, they're all celebrating." <laughs> I'm really going to get a hero's welcome. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. I don't remember you even leaving. I know. I remember yeah, you I, did the movie. Yeah, I went off to to Utah. I mean, it probably just felt like I went on, you know, because occasionally we would go out on the road, right? I went on the road for probably like two weeks at a time and I was, mm. I was working the West coast through a couple of bookers, but, uh, you know, it was, yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> but you, you hated the road cause you didn't, oh. you, I remember, yeah, you hated, uh, not yeah. sleeping in your bed. That's what yeah. I mean. And also just, you never knew who you're going to get paired with in those comedy. Yeah. Condos. Yeah. Did you ever do the road? A little bit. Yeah. It's the bit. worst. Cause that, that was, I don't, I don't, think they do it this way anymore i think they just give you hotel rooms now but back then they would they would buy a condo they put you in a condo yeah yeah and they'd have three bedrooms a big one for the headliner and a smaller one for the middle and then a tiny one for the opener yeah yeah and you would just some weeks you would be with guys who were just so great and you'd have the greatest week and then the next week you'd be with the worst of the worst who just wanted to you know sleep with waitresses and it just like oh i could that toxic masculinity in some of those situations are horrible I only had uh, uh, good experiences when I did it. Nice. I only had good experiences. I never had, I heard about those things. I never, I, uh, I was just talking about, uh, it was uh, me, Steve Harvey, and Tishon Shannon in oh, yeah. Texas. And uh, that was really great. They were both great. Uh, I never saw anybody work as hard as Steve at that guy. It's, it was weird to watch him work wow. um, because he, what he would do is he'd get, I've, I've said this so people will know this from the other episode, but. 
Steve would get up. Like, Tishon and I would wake up and was like, where's Steve? Steve would have been, he'd find the black part of town. He would make friends with everybody in the black part of town. And by the time the show happened that night, that place was full of all of his friends from wow. like, yeah, it was crazy. And he was like, I was like, I didn't even know you could do that. You know, like go out and just, he would yeah. go out and promote himself in this way that I'd never seen another comic do. I so um, admire that. I wish I had that. I, that's always where I've fallen down in my career is I'm so much about getting the thing made. that even though I get into the marketing and everything, I'm always kind of like, all right, we did that. What's next? And it's like, no, make that thing work, you know, get as many people as you can. You should be out like, you know, walking around the street with a, you know, with a sandwich board. And yeah. I always fall down on that. So I admire like guys who do that, who have the, yeah. the wherewithal to do that. Yeah. It was one of those things I didn't even know like to do. I'm like, well, we, we wait here until we go to the club. Right. Like, you know, uh, and the, the mall, right. Yeah. That, that's the other thing that Steve Harvey would do. He liked his clothes. So, you know, Brian, come with me. And then I'd watch him shop because he was the headliner and had more money. <laughs> You know, exactly. it's like, yeah, it was, it was, uh, but it was fun to watch him shop. <laughs> I was like, there what do you go. think about these shoes that you can never afford? <laughs> exactly. Nice. Nice. It's aspirational. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess so. He gave me a goal. That's what he did. I have to thank Steve for that. He gave me a goal. Um, anyway, so, um, and the only reason, the reason I wanted to get to your acting is because I know you had gone to film school, um, and you were acting. Is there anything? And we'll get into when you started directing, but I want to know if there's anything from stand-up or anything from your acting that you bring with you as a director or as a writer. As a yeah, I'm honestly, everything. Uh, I, you know, one of the big pieces of advice I give to anybody is like, do, you know, act in something, take improv classes, try stand-up, any of Because if you don't understand what performers are going through, you can't effectively work with them. You know, you right. can't communicate in a way that you know how to get what you need out of them and how to keep them feeling good. <clears throat> you know, it's not like they always have to feel good, but they have to feel safe. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, and I learned things when I was, you know, I would have, you know, I was always on a lot of sitcoms as opposed yeah. to like single camera stuff. But, you know, there'd be directors I worked with who were great and really nurturing. I remember like, Robbie Benson was like one of the, greatest I ever worked. He was so, everything was wonderful. He was just, he so took care of you, but he'd get something great out of you. He didn't coddle you, but he also just was really supportive. And so I, versus guys who I won't mention, like, you know, you try something and they're like, what, what are you doing? No, that's terrible. Stop. And you're just like, oh my God. So then boom, you just would freeze up. Right. It's like, if you would just encourage me and just go like, oh, cool, we got that. Or, oh, maybe not that, but this, you know, then, then you feel like you're part of the process versus this right. punitive thing. So, I get that. I mean, honestly, because of the stand-up, like I was saying earlier, you know, um, when we are putting a movie together, it's a lot like putting a stand-up act together. You know, obviously, even when you're writing, you're you know, you're looking for okay, we need alt things. Let's make sure you know we have different things we can try in the editing room, so we don't just have one joke. So when we go right. in the editing room, we do a test screen and go like, well, that didn't work. Well, that's the only one we have. You know, so it's having all that stuff, but even. Even as a, when you're writing the script, you learn, especially if, if, you know, once you made it to like being a middle where you do a half hour in front of an audience, sure. up to an hour, you learn the ebb and flow of an audience. You would learn how their attention span worked. And if you went at them too hard, too much, too fast, how they would kind of wear out versus if you take them down and you bring them up and you wait, you know, that kind of stuff. So I find the rhythms of that I'm constantly applying when I'm writing a script. 
you know, it is also very musical in, in a weird way. I mean, you know, and I used to do music in my act. I don't know if you remember. You yeah. Know. No, and yeah, you're a musician. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, as a drummer and stuff. So, so there's a musicality that you need to do. I mean, that's all the, my editor and I are ever saying in the editing room is like the math is off, the rhythm's off. And the, you know, it's not, you know, and it is this thing you feel like a clunk or something mm-hmm. and it's very much kind of keeping that flow going. So that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And just, I, I think just my ability to create a safe environment for my actors where they feel they can try anything, expose themselves any way they can emotionally yeah. so that then I can get an honesty out of them. And, and also it's, I think uh, a weird, it's a weird word to say, but humility comes out of doing, especially stand up, but acting anything where you, where you expose yourself that way. Yeah. Because there's enough moments where you go like, oh, I thought it was right and I wasn't. You know, mm-hmm. it felt so right, but then some outside eye said, oh, try this. And you're like, first you're like, wait, no, don't tell me. And then it's like, oh, wait, that is better. This feels better. You know, yeah. that is the most important thing I've found as a filmmaker, which is, I never go like, don't tell me, I know what it is. Just do this, just do that. I go, I, here's what I need to get. But then, you know, the actor goes like, oh, can I try this? It's like, cool, you try that. Or, you know, uh, I've got a writer with me. They're like, oh, try this. I'm like, oh yeah, let's try it. So it's all this stuff to get it all because I've realized over the years, I kind of know what I'm doing, but I don't ultimately know because you can't know what has never happened before. You know what I mean? Right, yes. Everything we're doing, every story we're telling, every moment we're filming with these characters has never happened before. So it's not two plus two equals four. Two plus two could equal a million different things. And you're finding what it is. And what I think is completely right and completely wrong on that set, 90% of the time I'm wrong when I get in the editing room. And you know that's why I never circle takes. I say, just, just print it all, give it to my editor. I'm not even gonna tell him what takes I liked. Right. He's put together. Half time I'll watch the assembly and go like, why did you use those takes? He's like, just watch them again. And as I watch it, go like, you know what? That's better. And at times I go like, well, let's try the one I thought was good put it in and go like, no, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's just, you have to be able to flow and ebb and, and, and have the confidence to know you don't know everything. Sure. Um, it's funny, you know, when, when, uh, when I've directed, one of the things that I do is I'll say to uh, an actor, um, when they have a suggestion, they'll say, I was thinking about X. I'm like, don't tell me what you're thinking about. Yeah. Just tell me you have an idea and we'll shoot it. Yeah. Because I might say no to something great because I picture what you're talking about wrong. Exactly. Right. You know, like, no, just do it. Just surprise me. Just do what you think will work and we can adjust it. It doesn't matter. What what difference does it make? Right. Like, well, I always say that. I say like, if I, if I don't shoot it, I don't have it. If I shoot it, it's terrible. I still have it, <laughs> you right. know, but nothing yeah. worse than the editing room. Like, Oh my God, I should have let him do that thing that he wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. And also it, I think, um, it creates a kind of investment that people have in the, you know, they're yeah. not just carrying out your orders. They're not, yeah. you know, robots. I, I, I used to be in this director's group. We would direct scenes every week and practice our craft. And, um, actually Lynn Shelton was sometimes in that. Oh, she would come in and hang out. And uh, yeah, but um, but it was really interesting to watch the directors who would over and over again try to make the actors into robots. Yeah, do this thing that's in my head. Do this thing that's in my head, and it would never work. 
They can never, but they wouldn't, I don't know why they did. They thought one day I'll say it and it'll make sense. It yeah. never made sense. And it yeah. always made sense when you gave people a little breathing room. It, it's, it's the problem with writer directors and being one myself. It, you know, this like, you know, how many times have I heard this from DPs or whatever I've worked with, you know, very established, famous, you know, writer directors, and, you know, and some actor will try something. They're like, you know, or go off script or whatever. They're like, I worked three years on this script. You're going to say it the way I wrote oh, it. You know yeah. what? I don't care if you worked a fucking thousand years on this script. Like this person has to say this thing and they have to make it real. It's got to come right. out of their mouth. You know, but I learned the lessons on that when I was a TV director because I was very lucky. I was on a lot of great shows run by great people, but every once in a while there'd be a showrunner or a writer or somebody who would want you to like you said, get, he's got to say it like this. He's got to say this joke like that. He has to say this line like this. It's like, oh, you know, I had, it happened, I, won't, I don't want to name any names, but there is a, a very, you know, well-known comedy star who is very funny and unique, who was on this show, and I was directing this show, but this other writer who had this thing, and he was a very, the polar opposite of who this performer is, okay. had this joke he won, and you know, so, you know, and the guy, the performer was doing it really funny in his own version. And right. I was like, really funny. And the guy's like, no, he's got to do it like this. He's got to do it like this. So, I mean, 15 takes later, I'm running in every time trying to adjust it. Finally, you know, after the 15th take, who I, this guy who I had an amazing relationship with suddenly goes like, this guy's fucking killing me. I don't know. Like suddenly I was the enemy because oh. I, so I had to go back to the showrunner. I, I said, you go do it. I'm, I'm, I'm not, you're not going to get what you want. If you want it, go in and give him a line reading. He's going to hate you for it, but try it. You know, and that's when I, one of the moments I went like, I got to stop directing TV. I loved it. But, you know, you were so caught in the middle of, mm. of, you know, a lot of times, you know, when I was an actor, it was always, if you wanted to, you know, change a word, they made this whole thing. Well, you've got to go see the showrunner. He's up in his office and he doesn't like to do this. It's like, I can't change the A to a an, really, or a the to a, yeah. it, it's like, oh, this preciousness, this bullshit preciousness that comes out of these, these kind of, meg, you know, these control freak writer directors, it's not a good thing because it just minimizes the talents of all these talented people around you. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, Pat uh became, he never directed, but he became a producer to protect his material, he said. Yeah. And what was interesting about that is, he had a very particular way of writing dialogue. Yeah. And what he found was it was sometimes hard for actors to say, and then they would say, can I change this? And then they would change it. He was like, go ahead. And they would change it. And then they would rehearse it that way for a while. And then they'd say, I see why he wrote it that way. And then they could do it the way he wrote it. That's once got the meaning. Once they got the meaning. Yeah. They could do it the way he wrote it. Oh, that's cool. That, that's great. I mean, I respect that. You know, it, it's, it's the downside of the way that I work. I don't rehearse at all because mm -hmm. I'm always afraid of people coming in knowing, knowing it too well. Yeah. Uh -huh. So, so it, you know, the way that I do things, it's, I really, you know, we'll kind of set where the cameras are going to be. If we have to have to do a, a rehearsal before they set cameras, I'll just go like, nobody act. Just kind of walk through it. Just kind of feel yeah. it out. Uh, and then we just start rolling immediately because I've had so many times in my past when the can, you know, all the operators, they go, no, we got to do one because we don't know what's going to happen. I'm like, okay, amazing performance happened. Right. Right. And then you never get it again. <laughs> right. Yeah. Lightning in a bottle. Right. Yeah. yeah. That makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Um, it's also strange when, uh, you know, um, uh, Mark Rydell used to say about directing, he said, 
used to say, all this equipment, everything is a big recording device. Right. That's all it is. And, and what we're recording is a moment here between these actors. That's great. That's what it's, he says. And that means when they're ready, we're going. Yeah. I'm not waiting for you light people. I'm not waiting for you costume people. I'm not waiting for the set dresser. I'm not waiting. Yeah. When they're ready, we go. And he, he, he said, a good recording of a bad event is not as good <laughs> as a good re- of a bad, you know, you yeah. know what I'm saying? As a, yeah. as a good totally. recording. Yeah. Um, bad is- recording of a good event. Mm-hmm. There you go. Totally. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I- that's so brilliant. And I, and I agree. That's why I cross shoot. And, you know, I've had so many DPs who won't do it because oh, it's not going to look as good. I go, like, I don't care if it looks 20% worse. <laughs> Nobody cares. <laughs> you yeah. know, if you're getting a great performance and it's all, that's all anybody cares about. And they go like, oh, I wish the light was a little bit softer on this side. Who gives a shit? <laughs> and yeah. I hate, you know, look, you don't want to look terrible, no. you know, but you know, if it's, if it's the difference between great performances and also with the cross shooting, which I do all the time, you it's a different kind of performance you know you get you're getting things in the moment it's total lightning in a bottle like you said yeah. you know you know that first scene in, in bridesmaids when Kristen and maya are in the coffee shop you know that was just five hours of cross shot you know very heavily scripted but then playing within that and then you know Kristen has something on her teeth and it makes maya laugh and it surprises everybody so it's all happening and you the audience are going like oh my god i love them so much because look at what great friends they are and they finish each other's sentences and you don't need all this you know how we've known each other for 20 years you know and it's like who cares you go i love them i want their friendship to last right uh no that's yeah i i think that um you know what it is? It's it's truth, right? It's any kind of truth. You're trying to get truth, right? Yeah. And so, and so, anything that looks like a performance isn't truth. Anything that looks too rehearsed isn't truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's. Uh, I know that if I'm sitting, uh, I, I was working on this commercial. I was directing this commercial, mm-hmm. and we, we were stealing locations. This was for a big company that didn't want to pay for locations. <laughs> so we're stealing locations that we had to get in and get out and get in and get out. We're shooting a lot of these spots in a day. And I was waiting for the actors to be comfortable. Uh, but uh, this uh, producer decided she could yell action. Right. And I was like, well, you don't get to do that. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because, because what happens is they weren't ready. I could see they weren't ready. I could see they weren't into it. And all of a sudden they were acting and they didn't know what was going on and they weren't ready. And this one wasn't ready and they weren't comfortable enough. And then we're spending more time getting it again and again, where I think if we'd waited for them to be ready, it would have been fine. Yeah. And, and, and we, we would get stuff and it wouldn't be honest. It wouldn't be truthful. And that's what I was going for. And I, I don't think she understood what I was going for, which is my whole job is to make it is to, I always say that my job is to be the first audience. Yeah. I'm the first audience. So if I don't believe it, then something's wrong and we have to figure out how to make me believe it. And, and that, and sometimes that is adding something or making some adjustment that is about getting at some truth. And so when you're talking about uh, the bridesmaids scene, you're talking about there, they do have a friendship, those women, Mm -hmm. correct? Yeah. So, so that's what you were seeing. Their actual friendship. One of the re- many reasons why we cast Maya, because like they're best friends. Uh, Maya's awesome, but now we're going to have this this connection and chemistry with them. 
Yeah, so that comes across. I, it's funny you, you you bring that up about that producer. First of all, which is horrible. Any producer that yells "cut," <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, hello DGA. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but you know, I, I get that because I always have to kind of train the people that are working with me who haven't worked with me before, like especially producerially or or what or studio people or whatever, because because you don't um, rehearse, you know. I'll just and go ahead. So we'll do a take. They are watching that first take like, oh, my God, this is how he's going to do it. Oh, and right. so they immediately, like, swarm you with notes. It's like, dang. I, I always say, like, give me four takes. Give me at least four takes before you come at me with anything. Because, first of all, I see exactly what you're seeing. <laughs> I'm not an idiot. Right. <laughs> you're like, all right, that was great. Okay, let's <laughs> moving on. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, what I like, and when I've been taken, when I, you know, in the early days when I get knocked off this, the, the way that I do things, it would always mess things up, which is I know what I want to get to, mm -hmm. but I want to see what they're going to do. And so they do their thing. And a lot of times it's miles away from what I want, mm -hmm. but I go, cool. So now I got that. Now let me do one small adjustment. Now, let you know, another take. And you do that over and over and over again as you incrementally crawl towards the thing you thought you wanted. And it usually right. turns out to not even, once you get to the thing, you, you like, that's exactly what I want. And you're like, I don't like that as much as what they did, you know, three takes ago or 10 takes ago or whatever. And, you know, so it's just the people around you have to get that so they don't start and get this panic. And you go like, look, the other thing is I also, after you've been through a bunch of takes, you go like, okay, the only thing I need is I'm not happy with this one line or I'm not happy with this one moment. So if I can just adjust them to get that one moment. So I'm just watching surgically going like, oh, cool, got it. Okay, that's the one I needed. Now I'm cool. The people who aren't in control are going like, wait, that was a terrible take because they didn't do this, this, and this. It's like, no, I, know, I don't care about that. I got this one moment. That's all I wanted. Mm -hmm. you know? and, but, you know, and again, like I said earlier, then when you get in the editing room, sometimes that journey where you were like, ugh, is the thing that you go like, oh, that's perfect, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. um, it just, it's just, again, you just don't know, but people have to support your way of working, you know, assuming you have a way of working, which anybody who's successful and good at what they do have. Right. Yeah. There's a method to their, their madness. You may not understand it or know it, but the, it, yeah, it, it exists. Yeah. One of the things that I, and I saw this on Freaks and Geeks that you, that you did on Freaks and Geeks and Freaks and Geeks has come up because we had uh, Josh Weinstein on and, and, uh, there was some, I remember when that show was on, I don't, I don't know if you remember, but I would write you emails after every episode of that oh, show. No, so, and, 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 and I was like, this show is off the charts good. And, I, and it was like, I know you think I'm your friend and I'm saying this because I'm your friend. That's not what this is. The, the show was amazing in its honesty, in its truthfulness. Everything felt like, I was saying to Josh, everything felt like um, a memory of my own, right? But yeah. I remember in your stand-up, what you were good at is certainly really good at. You were good at all the stuff you did. Like your impressions were funny. And, you know, like uh, <laughs> Mr. Howell and everything. It was all very funny. Yes. Um, but when you, you used to do a shop teacher thing and all of, the, all of the comics would stand in the back of the club. It's, you know, shop <laughs> teacher, shop teacher, whatever. Yeah. And, um, and then you used to do a thing about bringing uh, like a thing home to your mom that you'd made at school. Oh. And, Right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Your mom, who was one of the sweetest people I've ever met in my life, oh, by the way. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, she really was. So, uh, but um, uh, there was an honesty there um, in, in when you did those things. Like, you can tap into that time in your life in a very specific way. Right. And that was true on, on Freaks and Geeks. And I, I, so I recognized, like, oh, that's Paul. I see Paul in this show. What is it that allows you to be honest in that way? You know what I'm talking about? No. In way, yeah. In a way that could be embarrassing, in a way that could be humiliating. Like, you don't have a problem going there. You know what it is? It's, <laughs> I, you know, I was, I've always wanted to be in comedy ever since I was five years old, you know, and I got the first laugh I ever got dressed as a shitty elf in the, the school pageant because my parents put me in the most ridiculous outfit ever. But all I heard was the laughs. And I was like, oh my God. So my whole life has been like, how do I, you know, how do I get kind of the laughs and the approval that you get from people from laughs? And early on, I just started discovering that my most embarrassing stories were the ones that elicited the most honest and heartfelt responses from people because everybody it's I was willing to talk about what everybody tried to push behind them or pretend didn't happen um and it was very cathartic for me so it was almost like therapeutic because you know I feel everything that happens to me so deeply as we all do you know but I really am a, was a sensitive you know, I, would, I was famous for just crying at the drop of a hat in school I mean all the way through grade school like embarrassingly up you know to when you're you shouldn't be crying, you know, and, um, and There's so never a time when you shouldn't be crying. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. We're all yeah. modern. We're very yeah, good. At yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it just, you know, I felt that stuff so strongly and this was pre-internet where you couldn't find a support group, you know, of mm -hmm. other people who were nerdy like you or just weirdos or, you know, sensitive or whatever. And, so I carried it around with me like this shame for so long. So when I started to tell these stories and they would just get nothing but laughs, but like supportive laughs and people going like, Oh my God, that happened to me. Or like, Oh, that's Simpson. It was so wonderful of going like, I like this. I'm getting a lot out of this. They're enjoying it. And, and it's just making everything more honest. Um, you know, I think it's also coming from the Midwest. There is a Midwestern sensibility um, of, of not liking things that feel fake. It sounds very whatever, but um, yeah, in support of the, the Midwest, I found that a lot of times when I was growing up or when I first got out, uh, you know, into the business, there was an East Coast, West Coast sensibility that will always like comedy a little more forced, a little bigger, a little broader. And there's something about this Midwestern sensibility where we would just be like, oh, that's too big. That's too, that's fake. That's somebody trying to be funny. That's somebody acting like they're crazy or, you know, kind of doing a pantomime of something. And we just liked really kind of folksy, you know, kind of just honest humor, you know, and I think that always affected me too. And so, and also, yeah, so it's, it's a big combo of that, but I, I just feel like, Anything that feels fake, like, you know, you're the same way. If it doesn't feel honest, our bullshit meter is so high that on the set, you're just like, oh, okay, that feels fake. That feels, you know, it's, it's the problem when you do comedy sometimes when you hire somebody who doesn't do comedy or who has a different philosophy of comedy, they kind of do their thing and you're behind the camera going, like, oh my 
God, okay, that that probably worked in 20 years ago. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's not going to wash now because it doesn't wash with me. And I know now, I know enough about audiences and what they like. It's ever-changing. But in the moment we're in, I go like, okay, I know that they don't like jokes, you know, and they don't like that. They want something more behavioral and this kind of thing. But again, that changes. And then, you know, suddenly movies, you know, even bigger than Jim Carrey movies could suddenly be the, the rage with, you know, way over the top kind of comedy. So who knows? I think that that's true, except that what doesn't change, I find, is um, the honesty part doesn't change, right? So Steve Higgins and I talked about the Andy Griffith show. <laughs> yeah. And how much we love the Andy Griffith show. Yeah. And the thing about that show is Barney Fife is big, you know, all, you know, but there's an honesty underneath it that has made it last Mm -hmm. where it gets new fans all the time, even though comedy changes, the whole world changes. Yeah. The world's very different than the world that Andy Griffith was created in. Yeah. And in fact, Andy used to say it was old fashioned when we made it. It was really, we were making it in the sixties, but it was really about the thirties. Right. But right? The, ironically, it was very modern. It, it's, it's a very modern sensibility for now. Yeah. You, you know what it is, Brian? It's, it's, and I experience this all the time. Uh, if, first of all, the writer, if the, Filmmaker, storyteller goes, look at how dumb these characters are. Let's make fun of them. You're already, yeah. you know, dead. And then if the performer is going like, look at this dummy, you know, let's all laugh at this guy I'm doing, then that's terrible, you know, yeah. because it just, it, then it's just mean spirited. And there's some, yeah. there's some really well, you know, thought of filmmakers. I don't, I want to name names because I don't like when artists attack other artists. Yeah, sure. Some who I just go like, their stars are always really good. And then the supporting cast clearly is kind of like, oh, we're in this person's these person's movie, and so they're allowed to be directed too big, and they don't have right. the, the confidence to go like, I'm just going to make this my own. So you get these weird things of like great lead performances and then these supporting actors, and you're like, oh god, that poor person, like they really somebody should have just told them to bring it down, you know, a bit. But somebody clearly thought that was funny, you know. Right. I was, that reminded me of. Do you remember in Beverly Hills Cop? Um, and there was the kid, what's that? What's that guy? He ended up being on that show, um, uh, Perfect Strangers. You know, uh, oh, about uh, uh, Bronson Pinchot. You're right. He, nobody knew who he was. Yeah. And he had this little part in that movie, and he was a star because he threw things away. He was honest. And all, I mean, he's in a movie with Eddie Murphy, and he's kind of stealing the movie or the scenes he's in mm -hmm. um, because he was honest. Totally. He, Oh. Even though the character was funny and had these quirks and whatever, they were somehow honest. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, it's, it's, you know, it's funny. Have you ever had this? I used to get that all the time when I, you know, before I was married and going out with various groups of people and they'd always go like, Oh, you got to meet my friend, Bill. He's nuts. He is because you're such a funny guy. He's hilarious. And it inevitably Bill <laughs> would be, <laughs> like looking for the opening and like, hey, look at that guy. Look at that guy's, you know, gay shirt. And you're like, oh my God, what are you doing? You get into a fight. Right. It was always just like, all right, you're not crazy. You're a guy who's trying to be outrageous to try to make me think you're outrageous versus we've hung out with, you know, guys who you go like, wow, this person's nuts. But you go, but that's really who they are. And so they're actually, there's something kind of seductive about them because you're like, you're just weird and I right, yeah. like you because of that. Yeah. Well, I, I, uh, uh, who were, who is it that somebody, I can't remember, but they're obsessed with the brush fire thing that Vanish used to do. 
<laughs> so Steve Bannis, and for people who don't know who Steve Bannis is, Steve Bannis is an actor who's an end writer and worked on Freaks and Geeks. And what was the teacher, he, the math teacher? He played uh, Mr. Kowchevsky. That's right. Yeah. So Steve Bannis used to do this thing where he would unbutton his shirt. He's a very hairy dude. And uh, he would he would catch his chest hair on fire. Everybody would chant, brush fire, brush fire, brush fire. And he would catch his, and he, it was, I don't know where he learned it or how he learned he could do it or where it came from. And I remember the first time I saw it, it's like, yeah, he's that guy. He's not trying to be anything. He's that guy. I'm not even sure if people needed to be around for him to do a brush fire. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, but he really was that guy. No toy. And it was hilarious because of that, because you're just yeah. like, wow, I can't believe Steve's doing this. But, you know, he is, I guess Steve was the original Steve-O, right? Is he the original? Yeah, I think he might be, yeah. The original <laughs> jackass. <laughs> Put that on his cards. Exactly. Call him up and tell him <laughs> the I original jackass. He's I great. Steve Bannis, hello, Steve, if you're watching. Yeah, I hope he is watching. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so, um, and so when you got Freaks and Geeks, you got Freaks and Geeks because of Judd, right? You had already written the pilot. I wrote, yeah, I wrote the pilot as a spec, yeah. You wrote the pilot and the Bible? Is that true or no? Well, what happened was I, I wrote the pilot as a spec and then sent it to Judd because he had just signed the deal at DreamWorks because he was coming off of Larry Sanders' show. Um, and so he immediately, 12 hours after he read it, he's like, we're going to buy this, we're going to set it up. But then the negotiation took a while and then it took a few months to kind of just negotiate everything weirdly. Um, I had a very tough lawyer at the time. Uh, but during that, he was like, well, you should write another episode. And then as we got, once NBC um, wanted to do the pilot, then we both decided I should write a, a Bible for the, for the show. Okay. So that's when I went in and wrote that a massive Bible, especially when we, when we knew we were uh, going to series. Cause I, when I, I really wrote it more as a document for all the department heads, um, for costume, for you know, for everybody, just to get everybody thinking. You know, it was a weird, it was an interesting time because, like you know, that '70s show was on, and everything that had been done about the '70s, the late '70s, was very cartoonish. Mm -hmm. um, and so I knew everybody coming into this was going to be going like, "Oh, cool! It's it's the late '70s. Let's get the leisure suits out. Let's get the platform shoes out." And, so, and I was like, "No, no! It's this has to. There's a very specific thing that I went through. So I brought in all the yearbooks, all that stuff, and then I wrote all this stuff just to go. I need everybody from the writers to the actors to the department heads in sync about what the tone of the show is. And so that's why that thing just expanded and expanded. And there's actually, cause I know that the Bible itself has gotten out into the world, uh, which is cool, but there's an addendum, which I don't know is always with it. And I actually like the addendum as much as I like the Bible oh, really? because yeah, there was more stuff in there that was kind of, uh, I just thought was, you know, very complete, but huh. uh, well, I hope people can get a hold of that. Yeah, there was something about the tone of that show. You, it, it did nail it. It didn't make fun of the time. It didn't make fun. It, and and the, the, I think that's part of what makes it feel like a memory instead of a, it's not a cartoon. Right. And you were able to get some very, very real moments. And one of the things that uh, Weinstein said was um, the actors on that show, he, particularly Linda Cardellini, he said, she yeah. would bring things that he didn't expect. And it was amazing to watch her do it. Um, and that she would fill those moments. And there was something about the way that the show was so well-written and so well-directed and so well-produced that um, maybe allowed for those honest moments in a way that other shows don't. I don't know, but it's a, it's a very yeah. special. 
Yeah. I mean, we encourage that, you know, I mean, every, but even from the casting process, you know, that was a very, I get very emotional when I cast and that one I was very emotional on because I was looking to create either memories from my past or, or personifying people I had invented, but that were very based on things that I wanted out of life. And Lindsay's character was the most important to me because I was an only child and I always wanted an older sister. And so basically when I wrote Lindsay, I invented my perfect older sister who I always wanted and literally had the look of her in everything in my head. I mean, I knew exactly what I wanted her to look like in everything. So it, I think it was our second casting session and Linda walked in and I remember almost having this like, like my, my body went numb of like, oh my God, because it was, it was exactly the person I had written the part for and I'd never seen her before in my life. And so I would just kind of, staring and then when she started to read it was just like she had the depth and she had the 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 vulnerability uh and the the strength with weakness underneath that i i just i was i mean when she walked out you know everybody was like oh yeah she's really good i was like no you don't understand like this is the person this is the person and i remember there was there, you know we wanted to be very complete so i was like nail her down, nail her down. It's like, well, we're still looking, but we, yeah, we'll try to make a test deal, blah, blah, blah. And I, we were in um, uh, Vancouver, I think it was, about to do open, open calls, and I was in the bathtub, and I get a call on an early cell phone from Allison Jones going, you, we're about to lose Linda Cardellini to some other weird show. Uh, and I remember just like jumping out of the bathtub and running around the house, calling Judd, calling everybody, go like, close this deal, close this deal right now. If we lose her, we've lost the show. Um, and, you know, fortunately we got her. But um, so, so, you know, so a long way of kind of saying, you know, I, those, they were all so perfect for those roles. Um, and the ones who came in who were different from what I had written, we readjusted the roles for them. I mean, Nick, you know, uh, uh, Jason Siegel was nothing at all like I pictured and wrote that character for. Because he was based on a guy in my neighborhood who was this kind of squat little guy who, you know, was kind of like into cars and all this stuff. And then when Jason came in, it was just like, he's this big, tall, handsome guy, you know. But then, you know, it was really Judd because I was like, he's not in. Judd's like, this guy's really good. Like, adjust the role for him. I was like, okay, you're right. So, so everybody was so tailor-made for those roles that it made it easier for us to write for them. And then they were able to slip into that skin and then bring more stuff to us. And then we were feeding off of them the whole time. You know, my Bible, I had, I had the whole season plotted out. And very quickly, we went, throw that out. These actors as people are just giving us ideas by how they're interacting and how they're working on the set and how they're inhabiting these characters. You know, then we're like, you know, we want to subvert this thing that we think, oh, we think that's what this person's about. Let's subvert it. Let's subvert it. Let's make Ken the coming from a rich family, you know, which just came out of our, you know, episodes and episodes with Seth going like, you fully expect that he would be a guy, you know, from the poor part of town. Let's give him rich parents. And, you know, he's this pot smoking guy who just, you know, can't get any love in his life from his, from his family. Yeah. So in those kind of things, but it was, it was just a big feeding everybody was feeding we were all vampires on each other in a great way you know? mm -hmm. as from what i understand you had made a movie uh your own movie an independent movie i, re I remember that you had done that yeah. and from what i remember um the, <laughs> you really started directing on a regular basis on freaks and geeks is that not true no it wasn't true i wanted to um 
I made Life Sold Separately out of pocket with my money right. that I made on the first season of Sabrina the Teenage Witch, bankrupted the family, then they fired me off the show because <laughs> so, they couldn't write for my character anymore. So I was like, I could, I could do it. Um, <laughs> so, but then, um, but then, you know, because of that, that was actually what Judd, even though I'd known Judd forever, he saw that movie. I had him do my, my premiere of that movie. And he was like, oh, I was cool. at, I was at that premiere. You were the, in Raleigh, yeah, with the with the oh, with the print that had the bad splices and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, I was there. Oh, oh, oh my God, that's right, Brian. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, what a, that was. Uh, I blanked that thing out. Yeah, no, it doesn't. You don't have to remember that I was there. <laughs> no, I want. <laughs> no, but because of that, Judd had said, "Oh, I got this deal. If you got a thing." So that was the impetus to you know to eventually get him Freaks and Geeks when I wrote it. But when we when the pilot got greenlit, I was like, "Well, I'm going to direct the pilot," and. Everybody was like, no, you're not. <laughs> Wait, no, I directed a movie. It's like, you directed a movie that you shot in six days. Well, yes, but, you know, right. so, you know, so it was, it was, for me, it was like, oh, they're really heartbreaking. But then we brought on Jake, you mm -hmm. know, who was so great. And, uh, and we, you know, we really, I mean, I think the first week I was being kind of a dick, <laughs> you know, because uh -huh. I was so like, how dare this young kid, you know, he's like 23 years old too. Yeah. Uh, but then after about a week, we really got in sync and really hit it off. And they're still great friends to this day. But um, so he came in and did that. And the whole season, I was always like, when can I direct? When can I direct? But Judd was like, you need to be in the writer's room. And when you're not in the writer's room, you need to be on the set. But I want you in the writer's room. Because I had a time when I was on the set a lot, writing on the set. And he was like, you know, because I just wanted to be by there. Right. there. Uh, but then I eventually was doing more writing. And it was always, I just was all, and then Judge started directing. I was like, oh my God, is everybody directing? Is that me? <laughs> yeah. But he did a great job. I mean, you know, right, yeah, yeah. Some amazing episodes. But it wasn't until the very, you know, the, when we were going to do the finale, when everybody kind of knew that the show was going to get canceled. Oh, right, yeah. That was when, they, you know, everybody, they were like, okay, sure, go ahead and direct it. Like, you know, who cares? And that's what, so I only directed the, the, the finale, which I also wrote, you know. Oh, is that true? I thought you had done more, but that's what I, oh, that's. No, uh, I mean, I was there the whole time, but. Uh, okay. And well, I, that, I micromanaged the shit out of some of our directors. I, <laughs> I, I still had, I still had the, I paid the penance for that for years. I feel so bad of how, how sure. I just, oh, I was insufferable on that set sometimes. Well, the last episode was really good. That actually, I, I, I hated that the show was canceled, but it was a great way to end that show. It was like the perfect thing since you knew yeah. that it was ending. It's a, yeah, it was really yeah, a great. No, we got the, it's so funny. Like so many people will go like, oh, you know, I wish you had a chan chance to do a final episode. I wish you, and I was like, I'm always like, we, I did the final episode, man. Like, you know, the only, the, the only way to have a more complete final episode I think the greatest final episode of all time, just for saying, and now the show is over, was Six Feet Under. Because they literally, in the last episode, showed how everybody died. Right. <laughs> and you go like, yeah, that's the only time the show was completely over, is that everybody is dead. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, because what I'm wondering is, um, I like to sort of collect um, things from directors in terms of, um, and actors. Like, what's the best direction you ever got? What's the worst direction you ever got? Because I'm wondering, when you did direct, I mean, you had been working with these directors, so maybe you were picking up things, but you had also been, uh, you know, um, you'd been an actor, and so you'd heard a lot of direction that was good and bad. I'm just curious about um, where you developed your sensibility about how to give adjustments to actors. Um, I learned a lot from Ken Quapis. Uh, okay. 
who, you know, he, he actually, Ken directed the pilot of The Office, but he was one of our guys who did, did at least two, maybe three episodes of Freaks and Geeks. And, you know, I knew Ken because he was a, I, I knew, my wife knew him, was friends with he and his wife, but Ken was also kind of famous from USC Film School because okay. he had done uh, done some short films that were we always would watch in class and stuff. Uh, and he had gone off and done these bigger movies and, and all that. But when Ken came on, Ken's got a great demeanor with actors. Like he never, one of his trademarks is he never yells action. He just goes, go ahead. And it's just like, no, but, but what I loved about that is like, because as an actor, I always hated that, uh, you know, it's like, it's not this as the old days, but like lights, camera, and, <laughs> but it's right. this whole like, till so you, your heart, your heart yeah. going up, up and like, no, here we go. And yeah. I just like that he was just like, go ahead, you know, and, and it just, and it was always very low key, you know, and it was, I don't remember him yelling cut. I mean, it was always, we would just, I mean, we were shooting film back then, so we had to be a little more, you know, yeah. with our time, but you know, the idea of just like, just take it again, take it again, go, you know, and, and I really learned from that of like, lower that pressure, like make people forget the cameras are rolling, yeah. you know? And so now with HD, it's great. Cause it's just like, you know, okay, go ahead. You know, I'll still yell action just cause I need the crew to focus or whatever. But right. you know, then it's kind of like, okay, you know, I, I say to everybody, like nobody cut until you hear me say cut, don't you dare cut. And, um, and then it's like, well, try this, try that. You know, a lot of times they're like, we're, you know, I hate when camera guys do this, but still rolling. And it's like, I know, right? I know what still rolling means. It means, hey, fuckhead, we're still rolling and you right. forgot. It's like, I didn't forget, you know. Right, yeah. You, you might as well yell action again if you're yelling still rolling because you just right. really killed everything I'm trying to do. Um, you know, but getting that thing of like, try it again, take this again. And, and I like also working with actors in some like this and some don't. We're in the middle. You go like, take that again. Take that. Try that again. Try that again. I'll do it, especially when we get like six, eight takes in when I'm going, okay, now I just getting, trying to get things I need, you know, and I, I, I admire actors. I admire actors who don't like it because they're very in the moment. They're really doing their craft. But I also admire actors who know that making a film, making film, acting on film, you are, you are going to be manipulated at some point. You know what I mean? Meaning right. in the editing room, we are going to cut up your, we're not going to go like, we use that one take all the way through. We're going to cherry pick because we have to. Right. Um, and so the people that get that and go like, cool, you know, if you need something, like, I don't, I, I don't necessarily like, I, I, it's very kind of them, but sometimes they'll sincerely go like, give me a line reading. I don't care. It's like, I don't, I please don't make me give you line reading right. because then I'll, do it and it will sound so terrible that it'll just mm -hmm. screw you up and me up. But, you know, just try this again, try, you know, and, um, and so that's really great. So, so, you know, but I, I, I feel like Ken, I just watching Ken, he had such a, also such a gentle demeanor with everybody that everybody just felt very comfortable. It was very low key. Uh, there was no dramatics ever, you know, about anything. And, and that was great. Um, you know, and then the people that I didn't like were just, or just didn't agree with were ones that were just kind of there for the, and this is not, not even necessarily freaks and geeks. We had moments of this occasionally with certain people, but where you go like, they're just kind of here for the paycheck. <laughs> you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, it's just a gig, you know, and, and like, you know, that when I was at my most insufferable on that set was just when people tried to mess with the style of the show. Sure. You know, through the camera and, this was a really interesting thing <laughs> because, you know, like Jake was so young, he was 23 years old. This was, you know, this was 1999 when we did this. <clears throat> um, 
at that point, television, a lot of people in TV who are directing and all this stuff came up through the 60s and 70s, especially the 70s, watching how TV looked in the 70s. And mm-hmm. if you remember, TV looked not great. Right. It was shot very static. It was very overlit. It was all this stuff. And so this whole generation of people coming up went like, when I get in the business, I'm going to make sure nothing looks like TV. I'm going to make sure it looks like movies, which has moving cameras and all this stuff going on. So then you got this generation that came in in the 80s or whatever, who then were trying to make TV very cinematic. Right. But what happened in the course of that over, you know, 15, 20 years is that became what TV looked like. You know what I mean? And so when these these directors would come into our show and suddenly the camera's doing these things that's rising up and it's going around behind things. I'm like, no, 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 I don't want that. I want this to look like a show from the seventies because I want it to be about performance. And if I'm getting an amazing performance on a kid and he's about to do something weird and suddenly I go behind somebody's head, you know, it's like, I I don't want that, (laughs) you know? And, and, but they took, they would always go like, well, it's going to look like a TV show. You know, but then Jake Kasdan, when we were doing the pilot, I was, you know, saying this is how I wanted shot. He was like, this is so cool. This looks like a movie, (laughs) you know. So everything had flipped. And now suddenly that style looked like an independent film. So it's just a long way of kind of going like the people who just kind of had this attitude about we're going to show you how to do your show. You don't understand you know, right. style or whatever. And it's like, no, every, every project has a style that it needs, you right. know, and whether you think it's right or not. And that's a, the big lesson I learned as a TV director is don't walk into somebody else's show and tell them what they're doing is wrong. Right. right. Go in at, with ideas and having a plan and going like, I would like to do this and even start to do it. And if they then go, no, that's not what we want. Don't be like, oh, come on. Just go like, cool. What do you want? You know, because they don't want you to show up going like, what do you guys want? But they also don't want when they have a note to go like, hey, fuck you, you're wrong. You know, so you have to be in this thing and you have to be very pliable. But again, that's why I always said, like, I got to get back to doing movies where I could be a little more, a little more inflexible. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, that reminds me of um, sometimes when, when writing comic books, you would have a licensed character, like when I was doing Lost in Space or when I did the Predator comic. Um, the, it's a licensed character, and 20th Century Fox was like, this is, the character can't do anything. We've never <laughs> seen the character do in a movie. Like, right. it, it didn't happen in a movie, you can't do it. Huh. Or, you know, if you're doing a character that's well-established, you know, you, you can't do certain things with that character, and, you, you know, you have to work within certain parameters. Right. And I find that some people really feel fenced in by those parameters and I really like playing in those parameters. I really mm-hmm. like knowing where the boundaries are because yeah. when you can be creative within those boundaries, it's amazing what can happen. Yeah. I'm when, with you. Yeah. I'm with you on that. I mean, I always say like, please give me some rules. You know, it, the worst thing, the worst thing in the world you can get as a writer is a blind script deal. Uh, and it sounds crazy. Uh-huh. And I remember like when I got it, it's like, this is the, I could do whatever I want. It's the worst thing in the world. Cause you're like, Oh fuck. Like <laughs> then you're, you're all over the place and you're pitching shit all over the place. And then they're like, we don't want that. And it's like, it's a disaster versus I always said like, okay, 
you know, be like, you know, Robert Rodriguez's first movie, you know, which I think he had a bus and a guitar case or something. You're like, give me, give me three items and say, write a movie around this. I'd be much happier doing that than I would like, go do whatever you want, my friend. You know, there, there's something about parameters that makes it, makes you more inventive and creative. Yeah. I mean, that's why, honestly, why Judd and I always worked so well together because he loves coming up with big, weird ideas that a lot of the other writers go like, what? No, that's crazy. But I would like, I love going like, oh, wait, okay, let me see if I can make that work. How can I ground that, make that work, make that real? And so that's really fun for me of like that problem solving. Because, you know, the way that you and I write, since we are, we do write very honest, you know, this comes from improv too and all that, but it's like, how do we put ourselves, like in life, we create real characters. To us, the characters are very real. So then once they're very real and I know how they think, or I can at least be surprised by how they think, then I want to throw them into a situation that I don't know what I would do. You know, because right. I mean? then they become very interesting. And I start to discover stuff about myself and I start to discover stuff about them and go like, you know, and then you go like, oh, they do this. It's like, wait, no, would they do that? Or is that what I've seen before? What would I do? And then it's like, oh, shit, I would do this. And that's where you start surprising an audience. Yeah. Huh. I, it's funny. I, I used to I used to do an impression of a friend's dad, my friend's dad, and I would do an impression of him, and it was so good that my friend would say, "I'm going to tell my father this." What would he say? <laughs> and I'd say, "He's going to say this," and he's like, "That is exactly what he would say." And so he would adjust what he was doing, uh, but the parameters, the dad, the dad Oracle. That's what you. Yeah, are. yeah. The parameters were, you know, what would my dad say, and within that those parameters i'm like this is what he would say you know uh and i could i i probably couldn't just made up things right i couldn't make up things out of whole cloth like what's my dad doing right now well that's yeah. not a, well, like what would he say if i said this yeah he'll say that um yeah oh. uh, um probably, that, that's the joy of writing when you understand your characters that well and that's the yes. nice of writing when you don't you know yes. And sometimes when I'm doing a rewrite on something, it's like, I can't get inside the head of these characters. And then you're just kind of like throwing words and jokes around and you're just like, oh shit, I'm not finding the depth. I'm not finding their reality. And then once you crack it, then you're like, oh shit, I got to go back and rewrite everything I just wrote. Yeah. <laughs> but when that cracks in, then it's just like, oh, thank God. Yeah. It, it's interesting when I'm teaching uh, people about um, having a point to their pieces and that kind of thing, they see it as a real restriction. But what I've seen um, at Leap Agency when I'm working with somebody or one of the editor, editor or something, and I teach them how to embrace those restrictions, it's interesting the work that they do. And they start to understand that their work is better when it's more focused and they know and they have parameters than when they can do anything. I like this shot. It's like, does that help us, that shot? It yeah. may be great. Is it helping us yeah. or is it hurting us? You know. Um, and if it's not on brand right you know um then it's hurting because yeah. it ends up being distracted yeah very right much. yeah very much so it's funny it's my uh, my editor who i work with all the time brent white he you know he'll come to set sometimes if there's a big sequence we have to have but in general he says i don't want to be on set because i don't want to know how much work went into a shot yeah because if i know that i'm gonna go oh, i gotta put this in he's just able to sit there and go like that works, that doesn't, we don't need it, don't need it, don't need it. And I really right. respect that, because how many times as directors we like, no, you gotta put that shot in, it took all day to do that. You know, it's like, I don't care, you're not getting anything from it. Yeah, 
I have a friend who's a photo editor who that was one of their, um, he's a photographer as well, but when he was a photo editor for the paper, a paper, <laughs> he would say the effort it took to get the shot has no bearing on whether or not the shot's going in the story. Yeah. That's just it. That's just the rule. Totally. Uh, yeah. Um, and that's, I think a lot of movies are too long, you know, don't get me started on how long movies are. I mean, Jesus Christ. And you're like, Oh, we can't lose that. Cause we put all this. It's like, Oh, I don't care. <laughs> like get it out of there. You're killing me. Yeah. I, there was a quote, uh, George Roy Hill, when he was making, it's a behind the scenes thing where he's making a Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Mm. And he's talking about getting the movie length down. And he said, if your movie's over 90 minutes, you better be David Lean. <laughs> and what's interesting to me about that is that um, what I found is I think movies were better at that time in general, mm. in the 70s. And yeah. I mean, that was 69. But in the 70s, I think, yeah. in the early 80s, I think that there was a more consistent level of quality i'm with you yep i think that when movies started creeping up in time in length it was because they the there wasn't the same discipline yeah right how can we do this economically yeah right um i just think that that's missing yeah it's also also i think it was back then movies were really made for adults you know, yes. Yeah. I mean, it was a very adult medium. And as, as it's in the age of the blockbuster and it's about kids and selling shit and all that, it just becomes just let's put a bunch of shit up. You know, as long as stuff's blowing up and things are happening, <laughs> you know, that's fine. But all these movies, you know, it's always that third act and you're kind of like, you know, look, I got accused of that on Ghostbusters too, but I, I didn't uh, personally, I like the ending of arc, but you know, there is this thing where you work towards this bombast at the end and you have these big things going on. And, um, I can follow it if I just know, if I'm just in the head of the characters, I can follow it. It's, I always am saying ad nauseum on my movies and in this company, I go like, just cut out the mayhem. I just don't want random mayhem. You know, it's yeah. like when I was doing Spy, you know, you know, we wanted to have, I wanted to have this chase scene, but it had to be, first of all, it's a comedy. So it needed to have some jokes in it. Right. Visual jokes. And, but the action just had to build us, to those jokes or to build the character of like, oh, she, now she's going to use her brain to figure out how to do this, you know, but we need just enough action up to then you go like, all right, I've seen, I've seen five second unit shots in a row. <laughs> like now yes. let's get to the person. Let's get the thing. I need something out of this. And, and, and I think a lot of those movies, just that last half hour, 45 minutes, I'm going like, I don't even know the geography of what I'm watching. And that's when I go nuts. Right. It's just like, what, where am I? What's mm -hmm. happening? Yeah. And, and why do I care? Yeah. There's, that's the other thing. Why do I care? Yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. you care because you, didn't you see the last five movies with this person in them? You know, it was like, know. that's it? That's all you're giving me? Yeah. You know, I'm watching this movie right now, not that other one. Like, yeah. it's a really strange thing. One of the reasons that I like to collect stories um, about directors, like I used to, my friend Stuart Stern, I used to ask him all kinds of questions about the movies he worked on and and um, and how directors worked because you don't get to see it. You never get to see it. Mm -hmm. um, you can guess how writers work. Mm -hmm. Most people have written something. Directing is this mysterious thing. And when you talk about giving adjustments to an actor, um, I find that I, I don't give, I can't give result uh, direction. So I don't tell people be angrier or whatever. I can't yeah. do that. Um, but there are ways to get there. And I'm just wondering, um, 
what you've picked up along the way about how to get people there in terms of the kinds of direction you get, what you give and yeah. the kinds of direction you've gotten that, you know, well, I had a few hard lessons on it. Um, you know, when I was starting to direct, <clears throat> you know, I was very, I was kind of a results director for a while because like, Oh, oh this, Oh, cause I get so excited and it's always like, I'm doing comedy. It's so like, Oh, it'd be hilarious. if you did this. You know, so, and a lot of right. that, you know, comedy people will put up with it. Right. Yeah. Right. Sure. But then I remember I did the show uh, Weeds, and um, the first episode that I did, I did a bunch, um, Mary Louise Parker, you know, I went up to her, you know, she's very serious, but she's so good. And I said something, I go like, you know, oh, okay, oh, you know, oh, that last take was really cool when you smiled at the end. If you could do that again, she goes, results, results. And I was just like, oh, shit. You know, so I realized, oh, God, I was just literally just giving like, you know, a technical, can you smile at the end of this? And so I felt horrible because I, I was so in awe of her. Right. You know, very, she was very nice about it. But it, it, so I was like, oh, oh okay. It, the first time I really had to think like, oh, wait, there's other processes that actors have and I got to figure out how to do it. But it, it, it was pretty quick because, have, again, having been an actor, I realized immediately, like, immediately, oh, I didn't communicate well to her and that's on me. That's a screw up because I'm, I'm working right. for the thoroughbred right now. Right. <laughs> nailing everything that she gets um so i was able to go oh you know to regroup and go like okay i think you know in this scene i think you know i think you i think you're getting a lot out you're feeling very positive from this interaction you know and you know, however i did it just kind of like it was leading it to like you know and then did the next take and i got exactly what i needed mm -hmm. so it's been a slow learning process over the years by screwing up with actors who are usually very nice about it, but I'm so sensitive to the moment anybody goes like, Oh yeah, actually, could you not do that? Or, you know, it's like, oh, I'm mortified by it. But, but the more sensitive I am, the more I'm looking to figure out how to work with somebody, you know, because it, it, this is the thing. And, you know, when I was at USC film school, you know, in the early eighties, it was all the rage to hate actors. You know, they loved the story. That, and it's a funny story, the Hitchcock story about, you know, do you know this one? It's like, I forget what movie it was. There's some, they're up on a crane and there's this, you know, the actor's a mile away or whatever. And he's got, a, supposed to run up the street toward and past camera. And so, you know, the, the note comes in like, you know, the actor wants to know what his motivation is. And Hitchcock goes, I'll tell him when he gets here. You know, that, right, yeah. that was so hilarious. Right, yeah. But I would always hear that story and go like, well, Actually, I'm on the side of the actor because yeah. there's a million different ways to run towards the camera. Is right. he terrified? Is he, you know, right. what is it? So give the guy a fucking direction. Yeah. yeah. So that, so it's all, all kind of, and I, and I've noticed from people I went to film school with, you know, not a lot have kind of have gone full force into like directing stuff, but sure. the ones you have, um, there's some who just, who got it and some who didn't and some who I watch their things. And I go like, it's all technically great. That was the thing when I was in there, everybody was really into making technically beautiful stuff. Yeah. So, you know, um, so you'd see these things. Everybody's like, Oh my God, they're waxing poetic about this and this and this. And I kind of be the guy going like, yeah, but I didn't, I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I didn't really like that character. Or I didn't understand the story or, you know, Oh, how dare you? Did you see that shot where they're coming down the sun? Like, <laughs> right. Yeah, I saw it, but you know, <laughs> sure. It's cool. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. so a lot of that, I think that all adds up into how you communicate and, and just, 
being in service of the actors. It's that thing, again, when you aren't in service of the people you're working for, it's why, you know, one of the many reasons why I wear a suit and tie when I direct and, and working in general, it just, I feel like it's my way of going like, look, I'm, I'm so thankful you're here, you know, and sharing your talents with me. And I want to be respectful of that. And, you know, let's all do this together. I have moments where I go like I expend a lot of extra energy trying to keep people happy that I probably would be happier if I didn't do. But I don't know if I'd be happier. I'd have a little more energy at the end of the day. But I just don't want to be in that thing of like, you know, dominating the set. I don't think that's, I personally don't think that's the way to work. Other directors don't agree with me and they get great results. But I think this whole thing of like having a terrified set, I just, I can't work that way. I can't. Well, you know, as a person, it just sounds to me like you're just describing yourself as a person. Like as a person who knows you, you are a person who uh, thinks deeply about other people and how they feel. Um, you, you're a very empathetic human being. And, and so it just sounds like what you're talking about is learning how to be yourself and direct. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, it's very true. It's why I avoided, it's why when I was in film school, um, you know, I was always just doing stuff. I wasn't directing this other than my little films, but then there was these big like thesis films and it was all about like, Oh, getting to direct that. I had, I wrote like a bowling musical, of course, something ridiculous like that. It didn't get made. But then what another guy I knew had written this, this pretty serious, heavy short. Uh, and then he had to, for some reason he had to, he couldn't direct, he had to bow out, but the, the school liked the short. So they, he gave it to me to direct, but I was not emotionally and mature enough to do it because all I could think of was when I direct, I'm going to have to fire people. And that was the only thing I'm going to have to yell at people. I have to fire people because that was my image of what a professional director in charge of not just my little goofy shorts, but like a real thing with a crew had to do. And I actually, I, I, I um, uh, sabotaged the film. <laughs> I, I, in the run up to it, I did a rewrite on it that was so bad and purposely that they said, we're just not going to make this because you clearly don't have a vision for this. And I was so relieved. But then I spent years going like, how am I ever going to direct? Like I'm afraid of directing because I'm afraid of what I have to, I think I have to become. That's, you know, that uh, I, I think I've told this story on the show, but I'll tell it again, which happens a lot on this show. But uh, Andy Griffith, I think when he was, uh, when he did the pilot for, uh, for his show, which was really an episode of the Danny Thomas show, Right. right, right, right. So he he's on as a guest on the Danny Thomas show, and there's a lot of yelling and stuff on the set. Yeah. And Andy hadn't done a lot of TV, so he he said to Sheldon Leonard, who was the producer, he says, "I don't think I can do TV if this is what TV is—people yelling and screaming—and I, I can't do it." And Sheldon Leonard said, "Well, if that's not how you want it to run, he says, you know, on your show, you're going to be in charge. If you don't do that, nobody will do that." <laughs> and and that's. And so he was going to leave TV. He's like, well, I can't do this. I'm not this person. Huh. Um, and uh, there's what? only one story of Andy uh, losing his cool on the set that I know of. <laughs> really? Yeah. And that was actually the day Kennedy was shot. Oh, wow. wow. And he was very upset by it and was slamming things around and banging things around. And they actually stopped shooting that day. Wow. He couldn't. Uh, but that was the only, that's the only bad story I've ever heard about Andy on the set. Wow. Um, yeah. But what? he just... Thought it had to be. Why can't it be a kind, creative place where yeah. yelling at each other? Yeah, and I relate to that. It's I, I, you know, I mean, look, I, I respect everybody's process, and so I know there's 
people that don't like it to be that way, but I just, I can't get inside the head. But again, it's not me, so I wouldn't do it that way. But I think as an, it, I, actors that I know who have been on those sets, nobody goes like, that was great. <laughs> it was great that I was terrified and the crew was terrified of the director the whole time. Like, I just don't, you know, I think that's, again, is just a director, like just micromanaging so they can get everything they want. But then, you know, if it results in a masterpiece, okay, but I don't, I don't know if it, I don't know. I'll, I'll, you know, I can only relate to how I work. So. Right. Yeah. Um, but that's fear too, I think. Right. Yeah. It's fear that, because if you've got creative people who are at the top of their craft. Yeah. And you give them the parameters, but then let them do what they do. The yeah. Stuff you can get, you might still have a masterpiece. It just may not be the masterpiece that, um, that you envision. But it yeah. still may be a masterpiece. Right? Well, that, I mean, that gets to my, this is something I, I, I talk about from time to time. And I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a key for a lot of directors to not lose their minds. And it is this. Nobody other than you knows what's in your head. Right. And so, you know, you come to, the, and I've, I've heard these stories of guys like, well, I, you know, Zemeckis always used to say, like, I get to the set and all I do is compromise my vision all day. And then, it, you know, it's not what I wanted. Yeah. I'm like, you know, and I drive myself crazy with that too. But it's like, sure, whatever I saw, what, whatever is on the screen, that's all people know. And, and if you're suddenly going, well, it could have been a lot better. They go, like, well, I liked it, <laughs> you know. So it's that, and that all goes in part and parcel with, you know, not being like, don't tell me because it all has to come from me. It's like, no, if these people are weighing in, I love getting ideas from people. I love when like, you know, the, the caterer sidles up and goes like, what about this? You know, and it's like, yeah, sure. Okay. You know, I always say everybody on my set, like, give me an idea. Just if I say no, just don't fight for it. You know? Right. Yeah. That's otherwise bring it on. Howard Hawks used to do that. Uh, solicit ideas from everybody. And in fact, in uh, the original Scarface, um, you know, there's an X on the screen just before somebody gets killed, mm. uh, always because in the papers at the time, um, like they, there'd be a gang shooting or something yeah. and they wouldn't show the bodies in the paper, but they would have an X where the bodies were like, this is where the bodies were found. And so for the movie, they put an X every time somebody was about to be killed. I don't remember that. Well, I have to watch it again. Then. Yeah. And so, uh, and one of them happens like they're bowling and they're at a bowling alley and somebody gets a strike. So you see the X. And then so people come in and gun these people down. But he paid people on the crew, I think, $20 in the 30s, $20 if they came up with a creative place to put an axe. And I think that bowling one came from one of the crew people. Oh, that's cool. Isn't that cool? That's really cool. Yeah. Well, it, it just, side note, Hawks is my, that's my hero. I think that's the director I try to most emulate in my career mm -hmm. because of the fact that he worked so many genres and did it so effortlessly and so successfully. Yeah, that's I that's you know, but that I got a lot of that from directing on from directing TV for 10 years, too, because it was really fun to go like I'm going to I never I never watched a medical show in my life, but now I'm going to direct one, you know, and like suddenly figuring all this stuff out, you know, on Nurse Jackie and then just going to a next. You know, it, it, there's moments when I kind of miss TV directing because there's certain shows like I would have loved to direct Game of Thrones just to like figure out how to do some of that stuff, you know, sure. So, that was fun. You just got to experiment. That's also with commercials. We had to do that too. You know, I just did, I don't, I don't know if I can say it or not. I, I did, I did a, a campaign with a, with a big star for an airline uh, right before the pandemic. So it's been obviously put on hold. Okay. But you have this giant special, a robot character that's all CG and I've never done that before. 
And it was really fun just going like, God, I get to do this and work with Framestore and, you know, and uh, figure it out. So, you know, anytime you get to experiment and play with stuff, that's, that's a blast. That's cool. What do you think your job is? Like, what's, you know what I mean by that? Yeah. What is your job? My job is to find stories and create them in a way that will the most entertain an audience responsibly. Um, you know, it's, it's, you got to think commercially because you want to bring things to people that they will want to see undeniable ideas. I always say in my company, it's always like, what's an undeniable idea. And it doesn't mean it has to be expensive. I mean, Jordan Peele, look at that. I mean, two movies cost nothing to completely undeniable things that make you go, I've got to go see that opening weekend, you know, that kind of thing. But also for me, it's about making sure that I'm telling stories that are ultimately going to be additive to the world mm -hmm. um, and not portray a hopelessness, <laughs> you know, and, and a, and a um, giving up on humanity mm -hmm. um, and to do it in a way that is, not detrimental to anybody, obviously physically, but, but emotionally. Sure. You know, um, you know, there's certain filmmakers who I know have had extremely tough sets that were dangerous <laughs> and, you know, people yeah. were at their wits end and, you know, and in, in, in physical peril yeah. and then they win the award and it's like, see, it was all worth it. And I'm like, it was not worth it. It was not right. worth it for that two hour experience. Sure. It was a cool experience watching it, but it was not worth it. You, you imperiled a lot of people, you screwed up a lot of people and yeah. it's not, it's not worth it. It doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds good. I, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, when you're putting something out to be consumed, yeah. Right. Uh, we, we, at the belief agency, we talk about it, about uh, medicine versus poison. Are we putting poison out or are we putting medicine out? Yeah, totally. Right. Right. Um, and we are very cautious about putting poison out. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's, our job is to entertain an audience. When you say that, it sounds very frivolous because it sounds like it cuts out thoughtful movies or provocative movies or this and that. But no, you can be entertained by a very heavy movie. You know, entertaining me, to be entertained means you are drawn in and you enjoy the experience. Even if it's a harrowing experience, you are better for having gone through the experience and you have been entertained. You know, and so, you know, you, you call it poison and in, in our company, we also call it homework. You know, it's like, we don't want to create homework, you know, right. or like, that's what I, my issue with a lot of like important movies, you know, it's like, if I just got to go like, oh, I got to go see this movie. <laughs> like I, there's, I think there's a way to do a very challenging movie where you still don't go like, oh boy, you know, we're right, gonna, yeah, oh, I cool. I kind of want to see, I want to go through this, this experience. Yeah. I think that's true. Uh, that that's about uh, often people are um, very focused on the big idea, what they're trying to say in the biggest possible way, and it's very. You know what it reminds me of is that there's an interview with John Ford, where he says, "I'd really like to see a movie about Jesus where Jesus was just a regular guy, hmm. instead of these sort of Bible epic things like a regular guy. I'd like to see that movie." But then he said, "I couldn't direct it because I'm Catholic." <laughs> Which was really interesting. 
to me that he went, no, I would also make that mistake. I wish somebody else would do this. Right. Um, but, uh, but I would also make that, that mistake. Um, why did I talk about that? Why did I bring that up? I like that. I like it too, but I don't know why I brought but, it up. But, but entertaining people and giving them maybe about spice. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That, that, um, sometimes people get so caught up in the thing yeah. that they're saying that they don't bother, bother to connect with the characters of the piece. If yeah. people are connecting with the characters, then you will get the other information about whatever this topic is. Yeah. Like uh, one of my favorite movies is Norma Ray. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite movies. Yeah. And yes, it's a union. It's about a woman getting a union started in this terrible factory where she works. But it's really about a woman learning that she has a voice and that she's intelligent and that she has something to offer the world. Yeah. And that's more important in the story than the union thing. Uh, but you get all that stuff, too. Yeah, it's the union story is the driver, but it's about the characters. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, the, my great insecurity in, in my career is that I don't, I, I don't like my story sense in that I'm not, my strength is not coming up with a complicated story. I'm really good at characters. And so I always come up with the characters first. And then for me, it's almost like, okay, what do I put them in <laughs> that's going to drive forward just enough to give me the time to spend with these characters and see these things? My, my insecurity comes from the fact that so many movies I love are so incredibly tightly scripted and these stories are very complicated and yet they all resolve in in brilliant ways that i'm always like i wish i could do that i mean i love doing my movie a simple favor i didn't write it it's when i read that script i go i love this script so much because i could never in a million years write this script sure. but i love the twists and turns and all that stuff but i wish i wish i could do that but if i had to trade one for the other i think i'd always rather be better at character mm-hmm. uh just because that's what we attach to you know, and if there's enough to drive you forward, to pull you forward, you know, just enough stakes, then, you know, I think it's good. If you can get characters in an amazingly complex story, then then you've got Nirvana, but, uh, right. you know. Then you've got The Godfather, right? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool, Paul, thank you so much. I don't want to keep you, I know you have to go, but I uh, really appreciate this. And I actually just like talking to you because oh, I too. don't get to talk to you anymore. Um, but, uh, uh, it's really cool to talk to you and you were really nice to do this. Oh. And, uh, um, yeah. And, uh, I am, have been a fan since the first time I saw you on stage and, uh, I am so happy to see all of your success. It, uh, it, it, it's really gratifying to see because, uh, yeah, you, you, it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Well, I feel the same way about you. I mean, we, we, I, known you forever and I've, I've just thought, thought you're the greatest guy and I really admire everything you're doing. I remember going to your, your first comic book coming out in, in Pasadena and all that. And I just, oh yeah. Wow. It's so cool that you do this. And I just, I, I really admire it. And uh, I think you're great. Oh, thank you, Paul. Thank you. You are a storyteller. Masters of the craft is produced in Seattle, Washington by belief agency. 